Welcome to the First Impressions Podcast, the official podcast of the Forum of Incident Response and Security Teams. Every month, Chris John Riley and myself, Martin McKay, share informal conversations with security professionals from around the globe. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone, and any sarcasm you hear is purely intentional. For more information on FIRST or this podcast, please check out FIRST.org. Hello, and thank you for joining Chris John Riley and myself, Martin McKay, on the first podcast. Uh, today, we are talking to Andy Ellis, and he's got a whole list of, of titles that I will try and give him, and probably do badly, but first, Advisory CISO for Arqua Security, uh, Operating Partner at YL Ventures, I, I got that right, Yep. Uh, prospective author, and uh, basically somebody I worked with for 10 years at a former employer. How are you today, Andy? I'm doing fantastically. Was it really 10 years we worked together? Wow, it, it went in a, in, by in a flash. It, it did, and you know, I, I used to have a lot more hair then. Yeah, mostly I think it went by in a flash because I kept you very far away from me, sometimes on different continents. <laughs> but it's the perfect arrangement though, to be honest. Yeah. Well, that's why you and I are still friends, Chris. We, we, stay, <laughs> we stay far away from each other. Exactly. He never pops over for a coffee, and I'm very thankful for that. That works. Andy, I, I, I do have a question. If you're the first podcast, does that imply the existence of a second podcast or of a zeroth podcast? Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't be better if we planned it. It's actually first impressions podcast because we thought it was a cute play on words. Oh, I really like that. But we don't do impressions. No. We've been told no. The, the impressions, no. No? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A large part of the reason why you, the three of us are talking today is some of the lessons you've learned over the last 20 years running a security team, what it means to be a manager in security, and really some of the things that other people don't necessarily think of that you've put a lot of time and effort into looking at and how to build a real security community within a company, not just a security team. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's, it's, uh, it's really important to understand that building a security team and building a team are basically the same problem, right? You, you have different flavors to it, but it's like baking a cake versus baking a chocolate cake, right? Chocolate may change some of the things about what you're doing, but the principles are the same. And so it's really important to sort of understand and abstract away what are the leadership fundamentals. And I like to break them into your personal leadership. Like how do you lead yourself so that people are willing to follow you? Right? There are many managers that I've encountered who you know, go to some management training and they pick up like 12 key principles and they go apply them to their team, but never to themselves. And everybody's reaction is that you know, you're a dishonest manager and you didn't mean to be. You thought these were great. You just never sort of had that presence to think about are you living the principles you're asking other people to live. Then another set is around sort of direct team leadership. Like how do you manage the people who work directly for you that you are responsible for them? And then the third is how do you manage your organization and how do you lead that? And an organization is bigger than just the people you work directly with, you know, the people who work for them. Sometimes it's people who aren't even in your management chain. 
but it's sort of a group of humans that are sort of headed in one direction together. And so I've always sort of looked at it that way. And then I try to listen. The most important management principle, if you're starting off and you've gotten this far and you're about to, to like turn off the podcast because you just don't like the sound of my voice, is to always be willing to listen to feedback from other people. Even when they tell you something unbelievable, it's still feedback that you should hear because it's a sensor that there's something wrong. So someone says something and you're like, that makes absolutely no sense to me. Now you have to ask what's happening in their world that they were willing to take the risk of giving me feedback that my first reaction was to like put up walls, barricade myself away from this feedback because it's so wrong, but it's not wrong feedback. It's just a sensor. And I've tried to learn from every one of those sensors. And um, as you know, Martin, as part of that team, there were an awful lot of people willing to provide that feedback in real time. Uh, I, <laughs> I was we, never shy about it. <laughs> you you were not, and you were not the uh, most vocal giver of feedback, I will tell you. Wow. Which probably surprises Chris. I can see the look on his face. I mean, he doesn't believe that. I mean, this this is, the, it's, it's a miracle. I mean, most... Most of the time, in my experience, and I don't have as, as much experience as you do in this, but when you ask for feedback or you're hoping for feedback, what you end up with is, it's fine. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that's often a problem of asking for feedback at the wrong time, in the wrong way, saying, how do you find it? People just say it's fine. But if you ask for specific feedback, you get more specifics. Right. So you should, you should tell people that you want feedback before you expose them to what you want feedback on. It's similar to you've been to a conference or somebody's talk and they get to the end and they say any questions and there's just silence in the room, right? Whereas if you go and they say, hey, we're going to have a 10 minute question period at the end. Now you start listening more actively. You're engaged. You're watching for a place to find a question. And so that's a really helpful framing. The same thing with feedback. You know, if I said now, like we're not done with the podcast, I'm like, hey, you know, when we're done, Martin, Chris, I would love some feedback on how I can be a better guest on other people's podcasts. So if there's something I did that you were like, oh, that was just a little bit awkward. Tell me, you don't have to tell me what to do better, but tell me you felt awkward. Like now you're like, oh, hey, I can do that. But if I get to the end, you're like, oh, I don't want to replay the whole dang podcast in my head and try to figure out what it might have been and how do I uh, give it safely? Because humans are awful at giving and receiving feedback because we always do it through a one-way mirror. When you look at somebody else to, to, crit to critique them, you're not looking at them. You're imagining it's you in their body doing this thing. And what must you have been thinking to do this? And then when they hear it, they hear it as if it's them giving themselves feedback. But we think in different languages on both sides of that. So it's really hard and you have to be very careful to give meaningful, actionable, and helpful feedback that makes everybody walk away happy with that conversation. I think there's a good hint in there that you gave that, that is, is usable outside of feedback is framing what, what you expect and what's about to happen before yep. it happens and not you know giving a presentation and at the end of it and saying, do you agree this is the direction we should go in? It's like you've just ambushed them at the end with, oh, I did not pay attention with that frame of mind, right? Right, right. And there's a separate thing there around just preparing for awkward situations so that you behave in them the way you might and giving that to other people. I've just always done this because I'm one of those people who is very doom and gloom inside my own head. Outside my head, I'm not. But inside my head, I am always borrowing trouble about the future. 
Um, so I have always assumed I'm going to be laid off. Like anytime I walk into a meeting with my boss, especially if it's one that there's not a clear agenda, like I assume I'm being fired. And I have had that for 30 years, right? But you know what's really nice about that? If you role play being fired often enough, when you finally get laid off, you're just like, okay, when is this effective? And what do you want me to do before I walk out the door? And you take them off guard because they're <laughs> expecting a fight with you. And you're not going to have a fight because you've role played it enough that all of the anxiety and discomfort is gone. There's no surprise. Oh, I just get to pull out my little role playing card for how to role play getting fired today. I mean, my strategy has always been never accept a meeting on a ground floor meeting room, but I'm sure that the role playing probably is, is a better strategy. That probably is also a, a, an interesting idea. You just don't want to be thrown out the window. Sure. Let's go with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Or a meeting with uh, HR is always a, a red flag on, on that as well. But you, you've got a good point of of understanding that at some point you're going to have to part ways with a company is very yeah. important. I mean, right. it's it, you have to have your ethics, your belief systems. And sometimes the company goes in a different direction and you have to be prepared for that. Yeah. And so this is my advice for anybody who's listening and you're like, oh, my God, I'm terrified I'll be laid off. Here's what you're going to do. When you walk into the room and HR is in the room already, assume you're being laid off and all that matters is how you react because nothing you say in that room is going to change the fact that you're being let go. They've already committed to it. They're not going to rehire you. They're letting you go and they're here just to tell you and they want it out of that room pretty much as much as you want out of the room. And you will get absolutely nothing by blowing up and telling them what horrible human beings they are. That's what you have friends for over drinks later that night. So role play it in your head until you can walk in, sit down calmly, and wait for, wait for them to speak. You know what they're going to say. So you just let them suck it up. And they're going to say something like, well, there's no easy way to get around this, but we've decided to move in a different direction. And you're going to say, okay, you don't have to ask for a reason because they're not going to give you a real reason anyway. When is this effective? And who do you want me to transition my work to? And you stop and then you say, ask the HR person, not even your boss, because they don't matter anymore. They're not your boss. Ask the mm. HR person, what's the paperwork process that I need to go through? And that's it. Be done. Uh, we've gone down a, a kind of a dark road with the, the, that commentary, one you and I are both familiar with. It is. But here's the thing. If you can go through that in your head right now and you're gainfully employed, now you get to start thinking about what would I do? If I was free of my current employer, what would I do? And now you can start to make the plans about what you might do if that happens. This might cause you to voluntarily leave your employer early, but it means that it's not like you're just waiting for the shoe to drop without a plan. Like build a plan. Look, I'll be honest, when I left my previous gig, like I had two jobs lined up by the end of the business day. I'm very fortunate. I had been working on those for many, many years. But there was no stress of what am I going to do next? I was already prepared, you know, that day. I mean, I so guess, Chris, can you take us in a more positive direction? Wow, it's like, it's just, gonna, it's just got dark real quick. I mean. Oh, see, but you know, have you noticed though that my voice stays really cheery and upbeat? So I'm gonna give you another lesson. I'm literally, I have my book in front of me with all the different chapter titles because each chapter title is like this pithy thing I want people to walk away with. And so the, the only one that's a little off color is serenity is knowing that the crap you're wading through is crap you chose to deal with. If you're in an employer right now, 
and it's a little crappy. Like serenity is when you're like, hey, I've chosen this. Like I haven't decided to move. I'm going to live with this crap for now. And when it's time to move, I'm much happier. <laughs> Martin is holding up a, a sign that I don't know that he wants us really to read, but it's a really good one. It's effing birds. And I just happened to meet the uh, the author a couple of weeks ago. And oh, awesome. I re really enjoyed him. Life advice Wait, that may have... in bird form. It's yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, but, uh, I think everyone needs needs one sign. I mean, the sign above my desk says, do more of what makes you happy. And, and every time I, I look at it, I realize I'm working as I read it. But, um, yep. you know, it's... It, but it, does it's working better. make you happy? Yeah, to some extent, right? I mean, I think that... Okay. I, I think that you often... In InfoSec, there's always been this theory of people do what they love, right? It's like yep. people who, who, who we usually hang out with in the industry and, and spend a lot of time uh, talking to at conferences they live this right they, they they you feel quite a lot of time they'd be doing this even if they weren't getting paid for it yeah the, i worry when people say that because i suspect the answer is stockholm syndrome you have convinced yourself <laughs> of that because you're a hostage to your paycheck um, which is look, a falsehood because stockholm syndrome itself is a falsehood it is that's a different issue then that's fair, given how much I jump over everybody with the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is also a BS thing. It's good for you for pointing that one out. Um, look, if I wasn't getting paid to have been a CISO, I would have stopped that a long time ago. And then I discovered, oh, look, other things I can do and get paid, and I'm happy. For me, the secret, and because it's for me, this isn't going to apply for everybody else. I enjoy doing new things and mastering them and then stopping. So for me, that's amazing because I got to build a security team where I would find a thing that I had gotten good at but was no longer excited about doing, and I could go hire somebody to do it, and I could go do something else. And so even though I sort of sat in one position for a very long time, I was doing new things, right? And now, like, I'm an advisory CISO with Orca. It's a startup. Like, I get to do new things all the time, and then I'm an operating partner where I'm dealing with, you know, a dozen companies each of whom is doing something new. And so for me, like, that's really exciting. I love doing that. I also get paid to do all of that. So like, if I wasn't paid, I'd probably do some of it, but not to the extent I do it today. From personal experience, I know that one of the things you're, you're concentrating on is not even, can I hire somebody who, do, who do, knows how to do X right now that I used to like doing? Mm -hmm. Can I hire somebody I can teach and grow to do X? And yep promote them as a better person when when the relationship ends. Yeah, and I've been I've been sort of tweaking that lately. I'm working kind of with a better way to phrase it. And I'm currently on you don't hire somebody to do a job, you hire somebody to grow through a job. And so I want to hire somebody who is almost able to do the job when I hire them, but needs help and who in a few years will no longer be doing that job because they're ready to go do something else. And then we have to hire somebody else to grow through that job. But everybody should have those positions in their organization that you really only hire for a small number of positions and most positions you promote. And you find people who can do that. Now, sometimes you're like, oh, I need somebody who is capable of doing like deep writing, taking researchers material and turning it into publications. Sounds a little familiar there, Martin. <laughs> um, so let's go hire some journalists who are mid-career to come in and augment that team because they have you know, 95% of the skills they already need 
to do it, or I could hire somebody who could do the other 5% perfectly. But now we have to teach them how to write in the English language, which is much harder than most people think it is. That's, that's a skill set that, yeah, yeah, that takes a lot. As a personal experience, there's a lot of things I know how to do well enough. Yep. And I want to find somebody who can do those things better than I can take them off my plate so I can go learn to do something else. Yes. Which is, I guess, a summary of what you just said. Yeah. And the secret to man good management is recognizing that those people you hire is going are going to do it differently than you did. And if you hired correctly, it'll ultimately be better than you would have done it. But you won't realize that at first because you have such pride of how you did it that you can't conceive of somebody doing it differently. And you have to get out of their way and you get far more work done. And even if it's not better the first time, you still didn't have to do it. You got to go do something else. Someone else did this for you. The other danger, I guess, is if you hire someone and you expect them to do it the same way that you've done it, is that they're not going to be happy. They're not, they don't have any creative control over how they right. do things. They don't have the buy-in to do things better, differently, faster, more efficiently, in a different way. Right. You just have to sell them on the end state. If you try to sell them on every single step and make sure they walked in your footsteps, like that is not a great strategy for most careers. God, no. Most of my management has been learn from my mistakes and don't repeat yeah. them, please. <laughs> yeah, please don't repeat my mistakes because my mistakes were generally pretty awful. You mentioned the the end state there, and it brings up an interesting conversation is that sometimes someone new coming in with a fresh set of eyes can tell you that that end state is not where you should have been heading in the first place. Yep. How, how do you deal with that as a leader where you, you have a firm belief that this is the direction we should be heading, this is where we should spend our resources, and then someone comes along and, and dashes that and, and proves that that's not where you should be? So I think first you have to understand if they're arguing with your vision or with your mission. And those are really big lofty words. Let me just quickly define them, which is vision is who you'll be when you get there. And mission is where you're going to go. Um, so let's imagine that you are doing research publications. I'm just going to keep trolling Martin because it's fun. <laughs> um, like I could <sighs> say, I want to have publications at this cadence. I want, right. Those are all mission things. Like how frequently we're getting out publications. What's the readership on them? And I would expect that if I had written those down, that whoever I handed this is going to come back and argue with me because those are like the details, the vision. I want to be the premier research stop. And I want people to come and see us on a regular basis. I want us to be said in the same you know, voice as the DBIR. Like those are great visionary statements. If you're disconnected on vision, that's probably a much bigger problem than if you're disconnected on the mission piece. Like, how are you going to get there? Great. Sell me on your approach because maybe it is better. Um, now, if we disagree on the vision, you're going to have to do a lot more work to sell me on that one because I like to think I've thought very carefully about vision. I don't think carefully about mission at all because I just know where I want to get to and I'm totally willing to adapt on the fly. And the more work you're willing to do, the much more I'm willing to adapt. So the, the mission can change as, as the situation changes, but the vision... Yeah, you want that vision to stay a little more steady, partly because the moment you change the vision, which you can, like, just because I've wrote a vision down doesn't mean we have to hold to it forever. It's not, you know, handed down from, uh, from the divine. But when the vision changes, <laughs> it affects everybody much more than the mission changing, because everybody's trying to plug into your vision in different places. 
but that also kind of circles around to the the earlier concept of communication yep and speaking different languages i mean one of the biggest problems i think CISOs in general have is learning to communicate up to the executive board and the the board of directors and marketing and engineering and the, the security team and the sales teams and each one of those is a different set of languages that may take the same words and really hear them differently it definitely is and not only are the words different but the motives of the people are very different and i've seen a lot of CISO changes in the last year which i think part of it is actually tied to communications but I think it's a disconnect between the boards, the CISOs and the CEOs. That I think that uh, boards have become more activist. Um, and I don't mean in the technical term about activist shareholders and boards. I think that every board director cares a lot more about cybersecurity, but doesn't know how. So they're asking more probing questions and it's a depth of probing, but they're vague. Um, and so a CISO hears that and a CISO is like very excited. I want to talk to you like you're interested. So let me give you the whole context of the security program. And when you say things like, well, are we good? No CISO is going to say, yes, we're good. Right. The, the best answer is, look, we're doing probably the right things for our business, but there's still risk out there. And if there was ever no risk, then we're doing too much. Um, but nobody really ever, I think, says that that end statement. The problem is the CEOs have been in an environment where they carefully curate what the board hears. And boards are never told anything that would disturb them, right? Everything is neatly packaged, right? Every possible you know, avenue somebody could chase down and say, oh my God, this is terrifying that foreign exchange headwinds are going to cause us problems. Like you have carefully prepared that message. And then the CISO walks in and is like, oh, let me tell you about all the things that could go wrong. And that is not a healthy conversation between all three participants. And I don't think there is a way for the CISO alone to make that healthy. I think they're just sort of now stuck in the middle of a board that wants to hear that risk, or half the board wants to hear the risk, half doesn't. And the CEO absolutely does not want that conversation to happen, but has delegated to the CISO making that conversation happen. Filtering the message that goes to the board, I mean, from, from my perspective, perspective my amateur perspective seems counterproductive it seems it's very much like telling your auditor everything's fine it just makes them look harder for what's not fine because you're not telling them this thing is not fine right so that, you know, if your auditor can't find that one thing they're going to keep looking until they find that one thing and the board strikes me as the same kind of entity where if you're not being honest they will read into every single message and say well where where is this maybe misleading or not saying the whole story and then maybe they'll think that there are risks that really aren't risks because they're trying to read oh. into everything oh but there's a whole art form for managing a board like that which is not <laughs> that you tell them everything's okay you present to them risks but the risks are always ones that you have now have well controlled so you'd say oh my god we were surprised by this thing the foreign currency exchange you know china invading wherever you know, russia invading the ukraine but here's what we're doing about it everything will be good from our side within nine to 12 months don't stress about it so it's so a backwards looking focus of like tell them tell them right. the risks that we have remediated we have re no no but we're in the midst of remediating and are now they'll be well controlled very shortly so they have a thing to panic about, but you've controlled it. Now, 
let's take the the zero trust approach that was just published, right? The the federal government's like, here's how to go do zero trust, right? Um, there is not an organization on the planet that is meeting that standard. I lo actually loved it. It's like, this is amazing. It's forward looking. There's a couple things that are crazy, like encrypted DNS might have some problems. Um, you know, point to point encrypted email, I think will be interesting to see how that one gets implemented because start TLS is not the way to do it. Um, but there's no organization that's doing everything on that list. And for the vast majority of organizations, if you said, oh my God, these are real risks. And they are folks, like there's nothing in there that I look at and said, this was just written by you know a vendor who wants their solution sold. Um, it's gonna take years. Like when we were at Akamai and we implemented our zero trust, which was probably one of the most forward looking zero trust implementations at the time. Like everybody looks at Google's Beyond Corp. I would actually put ours up against it as being very comparable. And it's mostly compatible with the government zero trust approach. It took us nine years. Now, some of that was we mistakenly went off and implemented 8021X on our wired networks, and we probably didn't need to do that. Uh, we tried to do micro-segmentation. We learned a lot about what a disaster that was. But, you know, maybe if I could go back and, like, put all the pieces together, you know, with what I know now, I could do it in five. But there's no way that was a one-year transition. And if you're trying to manage your board on a one-year, everything's going to be okay. Like, you're just sort of stuck at this point because your CEO is going to want one message and you're not going to feel comfortable with that message. I mean, by I, the way, just so you know, Chris, when, when Andy says uh, communicating to the board is an art form, he means interpretive dance. Ah, <laughs> and it suddenly makes so much more sense. Interp I like to think of it as interpretive PowerPoint. <laughs> That's even worse. <laughs> there are some people who write programs in Perl and Python and they argue about the difficulty of that. I do all of my hacking in PowerPoint. Not Prezi? You don't like to see your audience seasick? Yeah, I don't I don't want them seasick and I want to be able to send them carefully controlled views of, of what I'm going to present. Nice. So back to the, the, the zero trust thing specifically, um, I, I, I won't dig into the details, but it's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, I, I feel that there's there's a lot of lessons learned from some of the big companies that have done this Yep, and everyone has done this wrong, and then corrected and and made improvements and made made big leaps. Um, you know, no one's done this right off the bat. But I, I think that we're getting to that point where a lot of this stuff has become commoditized to to the point where you can bring out individual solutions that cover for sections of this. Not all of it, right? Yep. But and then the, I think when the White House or government says we need this, it, I don't think it's ever going to be a list of things that anyone can easily just turn on in their config for their cloud, right? Right, because if that. you could, you then gotta, we all would have done it already. You've got to push that envelope a little bit. And it's yeah. like, here's two things that are not well solved right now. Dear industry, this needs to get solved. Please focus on these things. Right. The, the thing that isn't even in there that is, for me, the single biggest disappointment um, is removing lateral administrative control. I think it is the single biggest vulnerability in every enterprise today, how many agents and administrative accounts can just laterally move inside an environment. It is why you see companies getting nailed by ransomware all the time, because all you need is to compromise one of those accounts or agents and you get everything, whether it's SolarWinds or your domain admin. And until we can actually get to a world that end user devices are autonomous and they're not remotely administered with root access, I think we have serious problems in the world ahead.
for a it's it's a difficult problem for uh, a system that has the ability to do so many different things not to be remote managed. I mean, if you're it remote is. managing an iPad or a Chromebook or like a very limited uh, endpoint device, it's kind of slightly easier. But fully fledged systems that have the capability to do everything is is very very hard. You know, it sounds that way. Except almost every organization I've interacted with that tries to do it does it worse than if they weren't doing it at all. <laughs> like my my Mac that I'm sitting on is technically remotely administered by Apple, right? Apple pushes a software update. I get a pop-up that says software update getting installed tonight. Have a nice day. Um, I come back in the morning and look, my machine has rebooted. That's great. Every organization that wants to sit between Apple and I means it takes longer for that push to get to me. And now there's somebody else who has root access on my machine and their software practices are nowhere near as reliable as Apple's. So I would push back on it. I think that for much of the systems that we use, certainly at the end user level, I think we could do away with 90% of the remote administration that happens on them. I think oh, this is a longer. I think this is a longer debate, and we should definitely yeah. get you back on to discuss this one because I think we could dive awesome. into this for a for a big section. But um, I think uh, Martin, do you want to bring us back to let's bring us back to some leadership questions? Leadership, okay. <laughs> leadership questions. I mean, you you and I had a conversation via uh, other means earlier today, and and really did kind of, I mean, talk about stress. We talk about um, what it is to leadership. You've already hit about uh, some on promoting people and, and teaching people, but what are, what are other things you want people to really think about that are com maybe not common sense, but should be common sense. And we're not doing as an industry in developing teams at, at security. Ooh, there's, there's so many, I've got 55 chapters in my book, so I'm not going to like list every single uh, one there, but I think the key thing is it's related to what's often called servant leadership but I call it investment leadership. Your job in running a team is to be continuously investing to improve the capabilities of everyone on the team and every piece of the team as it grows. So sometimes that's about putting together the right people in the right environment. Like a great football team does not compete well on a hockey rink. And so sometimes you have great people and you're asking them to do work that they're not suited to do and the environment isn't ready for it. That's your job as a manager to say, hey, um, what do I do here? You know, there have been times when I've you know, asked people to say, look, we're not allowed to stop doing this work, but I think it's remarkably ineffective and a waste of our time. So tell me what's the minimum you can spend on this that I can claim we're at least in maintenance mode. And I'll be very honest with you, I would love to say we're not gonna do it, but I know I can't get away with that. So you tell me what that minimum is and now my job is to give you air cover to go do something else that we both think is more effective and, and value for the business. It's about training people and helping them guide their own careers. Um, don't ever talk to your people about their next job because that's a, a contentious, awful argument. The only time you should really have that is like, oh, hey, look, I've just promoted you. Here's your next job. But if I want to develop you, if I have it in the context of your next job, you get angry with me because you're like, I'm ready for my next job right now. I don't need to be developed into it. Like you start from this framing that's already contentious because they think they're underpromoted. But if I said, you know, let's talk about your future career. Where do you, might you be in two jobs from now? 
And now there's different choices, different places. Maybe you're going to go into marketing. Maybe you're going to go into security Ow. research. Maybe you're going to go to software engineering. <laughs> Martin's like, wait, I've been on the other side of this conversation. Yes, right? But it's not contentious at that point. In two, two jobs, you might be in marketing. It's two jobs later. Martin's going to be in marketing. Two jobs. Hey, 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 not necessarily. I mean, uh, I'm still still winding down the last job, and, and we'll see what happens with the next one. But I don't think you and I ever framed the conversation that way, but that's not necessarily because you're, what you're saying is wrong. It's just because I'm a little different and odd and strange. Right. And yes, yeah, so I, I gave you a formula here, and Martin just said, but I never experienced that formula that way because that wasn't what Martin needed to hear it talked about as. So, you, so I, I didn't use those words, but absolutely. Like I never wanted to say, Martin, let's talk about like how you're going to develop in the next six months. Like I knew Martin could mostly self-manage that. And yeah, we could do little course corrections, but it was about, let's look about that long-term. Where might you go? What might you do? Which continent am I going to send you to next? I think our conversations were more about Martin. There's a wall in front of you. You have to make a decision. Are you going to blast through it or are you going to bang your head on it? Yeah, that often those were conversations. <laughs> I mean, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there's there's a subsection of people we work with on a regular basis where if you say, let's discuss your 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 growth over the next six months, they would immediately hear, I'm doing something wrong. Right. You know, and they would I mean if you say, Where where do you want to be in a year? People are gonna think, if I don't move, I'm gonna get laid off. So right. and so you have to also talk about it from a shared understanding perspective for the whole organization, right? If I come to you and say, oh, this is the conversation I want to have with you, um, you having been managed your whole life will be like, oh, the only time people talk about performance is either I'm getting immediately promoted, oh, that didn't happen, or I'm being put on a performance improvement plan because you would like to let me go um, and cover your basis so that I don't sue you. And like, that's the only reason people do performance improvement plans is so that they don't have to be sued because they're going to create a paper trail about why they just let you go, despite the fact that you're an at-will employee. And if I walked up and I said, hey, Chris, you know, I don't think it's really working out. Do you? And if you said, yeah, no, it's not really. Great. Why don't you start looking? We'll do a six-month transition plan and save all the paperwork. And the day you find another job, I'll give you the rest of the money as your like, exit package. You'd be like so excited. But instead, I'm going to make us fill out paperwork about how you're not capable of doing this job and we're going to burn a lot of bridges. And but, that's but all that's, of the performance development. But that's because at the end of that paperwork, you're just like, I'm thankful it's over because I right. don't have to worry. And then you're happy you because you no work. longer have to right. do the paperwork. Yeah, and maybe I can convince you to quit so I don't have to worry about the consequences of firing you in those six months. But if instead uh. you tell your organization, hey, we are invested in your growth and we want you to understand what opportunities are out there, and if we're not the right team for you, we want to find another team inside the company for you and help you be ready for that job. And if leaving the company is the right thing for you, hint, it's the right thing for everybody at some point, we're going to help you go find that because we know that when you leave, if you run across somebody who is looking for a job, you're going to send them our way. Right? And that was my philosophy was we're going to do that. I think the the 15 months before I left Akamai, granted, it was mostly during a global pandemic, but we had zero turnover in a team that was almost 100 people. Like 15 months, not one person left. And the person who had left before that was a mutual separation, was they weren't a good fit. We knew they weren't a good fit. 
I'm not going to say it was all good blood. There was a little bit of bad blood around how that ended up working out, but like those, that's pretty crazy retention numbers that we can go back and look at that and see how many people wanted to stay there when we were actively trying to get them to leave. Like we had a development team that the whole point of that development team was we will teach you how to be an architect for complex systems and then help you find a job elsewhere in the company that needed architects and they didn't want to leave. They were like, no, I like this job way better. Yeah. I mean, that's, I guess that's a that's another question of a problem of culture. It's a, it's a good problem to have. It's like when the culture in your little area of the company is so special that anywhere else in the company looks like a bad fit because they're not your kind of people. Right. And, you know, I, I do look back and I wonder, you know, could we have done something differently? I don't think I would have done anything differently. Um, because, you know, realistically, that was the culture I wanted to have. I wanted to have people who were excited to talk to their coworkers, who felt psychologically safe when there were issues that they could bring them up, that, you know, you could walk in and be like, Andy, like, I'm really upset because of something you said in the all hands meeting. And that happened to me, like, I would have an all hands meeting every quarter. And after almost everyone, I had somebody upset with me because of something I had said, and they would felt comfortable coming and saying, look, I don't think you highlighted my team enough. Like, literally, that was a complaint once. And it was just fascinating. Was, I'm like, oh, let me like, try to figure out, like, what did I do? Like, how could I have done better? I've never really figured it out because it was an on-the-spot question. I'm like, when I can prepare an answer, I give much better answers than if you ask me on the <laughs> spot, like, oh, tell me what work you value in our team. And I'm like, oh, man, wait, but 94 of you. Like, who are you again? Sorry. Right. Well, no, no, I knew who everybody was. <laughs> but but how do I give an answer that all 94 people will feel like they can see themselves in that answer at that moment? And because if they don't, they're going to be upset. They're going to be like, oh, you picked this work right next to me, but my work was more valuable. So why didn't you mention my work? And they're right. You know, Andy, I think, I think one of the, the most important conversations you I, and I ever had, at least for me, yep. was, short, was about three months after I started. You and I were in a car headed to go visit, I think, Twitter. And I was confused. I had come from a, a several roles where... I had been told what to do every day yep. and you basically, I said, what do you want me doing? And you said, I don't know, go figure it out. That's what I hired you for. Yep. You're expected to be a, a senior member of my team. You need to figure it out. After most of my career, having been about somebody else telling me what to do and me railing against them, suddenly having that open and having that knowledge that it's up to me to decide what is most important for the team, for the company, yep. for myself, was eye-opening and very hard to really internalize for several years after that. Yeah, well, the challenge that I had, especially when we hired you and, and some of your peers is doing a lot of our sort of evangelism, is it was really hard for me to delegate it because people had already filtered out all of the things they didn't think I would be great at before they would come to me. So they'd come to me and say, Andy, can you do this thing? And it's like, that's the hard one to delegate. What about the other 12 things? Cause I've got people who I want them to be able to pick from those 12 things. I don't want it to be the things that you know, that I love doing and that I've self-selected for. And so like, that was actually at a point in my career where I'd hired these senior people. And I'm like, I don't know how to give you work. Because I don't, A, I don't want to hand you the work that's left for me. Because I like that, I, I liked doing. 
Um, and it was a perfect fit for me and it wouldn't be a perfect fit for you. And so, you know, I decided I would take my delegation strategy to heart. I didn't know how to manage you. So I delegated <laughs> to you managing yourself. I mean, I, I also see this problem when uh, people grow through the ranks and you get to that tipping point where, you know, your role is not for someone to tell you what to do now. now go and find a problem and solve it. And yep. and that that is the, the same kind of thing where it's, what, what problem should I fix? It was like, well, you need to go and find that problem yourself because allowing people to go and find those problems means that you're dealing with the problems that affect people and not just dealing yep. with imaginary problems that someone in management thinks is an actual problem. But it's often very hard for people to grasp. Yeah, and it's, it's easier when you have somebody who's been a long-term employee who is now at a senior level and you can say, look, you know where all the problems are. Go start fixing some. Versus somebody who had just come in who has these great skills but doesn't know where any of the corpses are buried. It's like, yeah, just go start knocking on closets and finding skeletons until you can do something. Like, that's kind of what you want to say, and it's kind of what I did to Martin. Um, the fact that he stuck around and survived is a testament more to Martin and the fact that our culture was willing to say, hey, if you make a mistake, it's okay. Like, Martin uh, occasionally pissed people off who escalated to me. Occasionally. <laughs> occasionally. Um, there's a reason that I, one of the things we learned from one of our colleagues is the concept of an apology budget. Um, the job of a manager is to apologize for the mistakes of their staff. And it's really your job to tell your staff that they have a budget of apologies. If I never apologize for you making a mistake, then you're not taking enough risk at finding good things to do. You should fail. So I can come give you feedback that says, you know, I think you're overspending the apology budget right now. Could you stop running through the brick walls that other people are putting up for you? Yes, I recognize those brick walls suck, but I, I need to not apologize for another couple months. Um, or I can go ahead and say, you know, I don't ever apologize on your behalf. I need you to go take some more risk. Like, don't be so afraid of failing. I think both the, both the don't be afraid of failing and the apology budget are very important um, lessons to learn in security because we have things that you and I and, and security professionals see clearly need to get done and we don't understand necessarily how to explain that to our own managers to 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 explain to executives how important some of these things in are and and a lot of people just never feel empowered to take that step of saying this is what i think this is what i think other people need to hear in the organization because it's going to affect us significantly if we don't address it mm -hmm. And there's a related piece of customer service, you know, everybody should think back and think about the best customer service experience you can remember. And I'm willing to bet that it started with a failure. That the brand or company you're interacting with screwed something up and handled it well. So failure is this opportunity of great customer service. If my staff are empowered to go fail from time to time, it's an opportunity for me to provide better customer service to show that we learn from those mistakes. Oh, we didn't realize that would be a problem for you. We didn't understand um, what your part of the business was doing. Come teach us so we can be better partners. Like you should embrace that as a manager, not just be like, oh, stop failing and making me apologize for your screw ups. They're not a person's screw ups. They're an organizational failure to prepare all of your staff to perfection. And that's okay. Like you don't want your staff to be overprepared. And ironically, I mean, maybe it's just a personal thing, but I would rather go back somewhere that screwed up 
and made it better. Yeah. Because I know that if something happens again, I'm in safe hands. And I know I'm thankful that they, they corrected this issue rather than someone who's I've never, I've never dealt with and they've never had to go out of their way to address a problem. Yep. And recognizing that you got something wrong quickly actually creates a reputation that you never get things wrong. Because people remember you getting it right ultimately because you didn't dig in your heels about getting it wrong. They didn't have to convince you you were wrong. You're just like, oh, hey, look, I've got it wrong. Let me go fix that. And what you remember is that they fixed things and they got it right. I don't know. When you say figure uh, digging in your heels, somehow I feel I'm being trolled again. Uh, oh, I could, I'm trolling about half of our coworkers on that one, Martin. So don't feel singled out. Well, former coworkers. Former coworkers. Clear. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Chris, rather than this just being about Andy and I reminiscing about old times, and what what have we failed to to talk about so far? Well, we well, <laughs> I mean, we've failed to talk about a lot. I mean, there's a lot of topics we can really talk about, but I mean, I think we're going to need to to get Andy to come back. Absolutely. Uh, on a semi-regular basis to talk about some, some topics. Um, I think there's a whole load of stuff we can dive into. I'm really looking forward to reading this book. So <laughs> as soon as you can get that out the door, let me know. I'm uh... Definitely. It'll probably be end of this year or very early in 2023. Um, it's a major publisher. Not going to you know say their name until I've actually signed the contract. But that usually means, you know, once you deliver the manuscript, it's almost nine months until publication. So they can sort of get the whole publicity arm moving. And with supply chain issues as they are right now. Yeah. Yeah. Nine months is, is, a, is a short timeline, right? You know, it's, it's the, the book printing industry apparently has not been as badly hit, but we'll see what happens. But it's actually how long it takes to get reviewers to be willing to read your book and potentially write a review that will show up in a major media outlet. Wow. I'm just wondering if we can get bulk discounts to, uh, of your book to sell t or to give copies to cor current and former managers um, as a, a play. I will happily connect you to a sales rep if you'd like to do that for them. <laughs> well, this, this turned a corner quickly, didn't it? We've, we've gone from I'd like to read your book to how many copies would you like to order? How many copies? I, I have been considering a, uh, you know, should we, could I get them to create a like easy gift service where you just come in, put in a former manager's name, you're willing to pay for them to be shipped a book and a book will get shipped to them? Just the book or is it like a box full of bees and then the book? <laughs> Well, I think it'd be hard for them to read the book if it came with a box full of bees. But they wouldn't forget about it. They wouldn't, but my goal is to get people to actually read the book and learn. Yeah, very, very true. Um, so yeah, I think, I think we've uh, covered everything, uh, at least on this topic, and I, I hope that we can get you back on to talk a little bit uh, about some other topics in the future, because there's, uh, there's a be wealth of knowledge to. there. Um, plus, I always like to see Martin squirm when, uh, when there's insider jokes that only he gets. It's, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the best. And I have not dipped into the entire barrel of uh, Martin subtweeting. Oh, yeah. We both have barrels full of monkeys to, to share. Wonderful. Well, with, uh, with that, thank you very much, Andy, for, for taking time to join us. And uh, if, if people want to follow you on Twitter or read any of your writings, where should, they, uh, where should they go? So easiest thing is look for CSO Andy. So that's on Twitter, I'm CSO Andy. LinkedIn, I'm CSO Andy. I am www.csoandy.com. Um, I think the only place I'm not CSO Andy is on my Peloton, where I changed it to <laughs> Chief Sweat Officer, just because that was more amusing. Wonderful. Great marketing. Like, everything is the same link. So yep. That's good. Cool. Then uh, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, hope to have you on again soon. 
Thank you. Thank you for listening to the First Impressions podcast and thanks to this week's guest. You can find Chris John Riley on Twitter at Chris John Riley, all one word. You can find me, Martin McKay, on Twitter at MCKEAY. And you can find the first organization at first.org, F I R S T D O T O R G. You can also find more information about First and the First Impressions podcast at first.org. Thanks again for listening.